one of the most beautiful things of my life is to watch um, people who have experienced rejection, who have experienced um, feeling like a failure to be received in a way that begins to affirm their worth and they begin to know that they belong again and um, that they can be loved and accepted. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to Let's Give a Damn. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and on this show, I have conversations with volunteers, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, activists, politicians, actors, musicians, athletes, and all kinds of people who are giving a damn and striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. I'm incredibly glad you're here. Friends, we have some amazing conversations coming up on the podcast in the next month or two. You'll get to hear from actor and activist Adrian Grenier, performer, author, and storyteller Joelle Leon, professor and climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, and many, many others. So please stay tuned. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please donate to our Patreon. And please tell your friends. We rely on you listening, but we also rely on you telling others about us. So thank you so much for all you do. This week, I had an incredible conversation with Julie Boyd. Julie is an author, community builder, and nonprofit leader working at the intersection of faith, global health, and human dignity. For 17 years, Julie has lived and worked in Africa, founding and serving as international director of Living Room International, a community-led nonprofit providing hospice and palliative care services to adults and children in Western Kenya. She is married to her Kenyan husband, Titus, and their children are Sharon, Alice, Ella, Jeffrey, and Ryan. Really briefly, a little bit about their youngest, Ryan. In 2016, Ryan showed up at their hospice. He was three pounds. He was a very premature baby boy. And at that point, he had been living on water alone for five days. It was a miracle he was still alive. And it's a remarkable story how Julie and her family ended up adopting Ryan and their incredible journey of caring for and loving Ryan through the sickle cell disease diagnosis that he received when he was just six months old. Julie's life and story are full of humility, love, compassion, and courage. And today is the book launch day for Julie's amazing book, From Beyond the Skies, An Invitation into the Wonder of Love. It releases today, the day this podcast comes out on September 28th. I urge you to get it. It's fantastic. Please learn more about the book and buy it uh, from beyondtheskies.com. 100% of the author's net proceeds from the sale of this book will go to fund Living Room International's work. So you buy an amazing book and you'll be helping Julie and her team continue to do the good work they've already been doing for years. A true win-win situation for everyone. One quick note on the conversation uh, you're about to hear. She recorded this while in her village in Kenya, so the audio isn't amazing. Deal with it, because she's amazing, and I believe that comes through despite uh, the not-so-great audio at times. In about 75% of the way through, the electricity went out. She warned me that it could happen, and it did. So there's a little bump in the road, but then we get back on track while she records the rest of her conversation with me in the dark. Just wanted to give you a heads up about that. Before we jump in 
A quick reminder that you can, anytime, and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. That's hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask me questions, recommend future guests, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Julie Boyd. Let's go. Julie Boyd, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. You are joining me from uh, the great country of Kenya. So you are seven hours ahead. So I'm sort of beginning my day and you're sort of wrapping yours up. So thanks for uh, working with me on the timeline here in the time difference and uh, joining us today. I'm so, so excited about this conversation. A mutual friend of ours, Andy Peterson, introduced us. And I admittedly have been absolutely slammed lately. He sent me the book. I looked at it. I was very intrigued by the materials that came along with it. And I'm, I'm always interested in uh, people that embrace global travel and embrace moving into different cultures, not to dominate, but to be part of the system and to learn and to grow. So your story you know, impacted me just from the little bit that I knew, but then things got busy and things got crazy. And my podcast schedule is booked out usually, you know, two or three months in advance. And then uh, I had a, I had a really weird cancellation this week. And uh, I was like, Oh wait, I think Julie's book comes out on September 28th. Let's see if we can schedule something for September 27. Um, and it worked out. So thank you so much for making this happen quickly. I'm excited to uh, learn from you. So thanks. Thanks for having me. And I'm, I'm really glad it worked out. <laughs> yes, me as well. Um, so let's begin here. I always love to begin uh, going as far back as we can, because I have found when people ask me for my, you know, Nick, what do you do? What are you about? It doesn't make much sense to begin, you know, in the last few years, because that's just, what's happening right now. And there's so much that had to take place. So many people, so many things, so many circumstances, good and bad and ugly, that had to take place for me to get to the point where I was doing the things in the last few years. So uh, people typically regret asking me what I do because I, I, I want to go back. I want to take them back to kind of give them more framework and more context. So I always love to start these conversations as well in that way. Take us back, Julie, as far as you would like to go and give us some of the who, what, when, where, and whys of your story, the people, places, and things that shaped you uh, and, and kind of led you to the place 17, 18 years ago when you decided to move to Kenya and this, you know, kind of magnificent thing happened. Your family, you know, was you, you, you made a family there and so many incredible things have happened since then. Get us to that point. Then we'll dive into, you know, you, you know, why did you move to Kenya and all of that? But what happened before that? G give us a picture into your family, where you grew up. What were sort of the things that influenced you that that kind of prepared you to make a leap like that? A, a leap that not many people end up taking. Most people now, since we can travel so easily and we can move around so easily, people do move around, but usually in the same country, very few people ventured to, you know, other continents to live and to really make a home uh, in a life. So take us back, give us some context into all the things that I just mentioned. 
I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, grew up in a family where we were loved and um, there was nothing perfect about our home, but my parents uh, really taught us, I think, to love our neighbors. And um, so we started in that, that kind of space. I uh, went to nursing school. I always was interested in um, medical things. I went to nursing school and um, I didn't necessarily, well, I didn't have any plans. Kenya was not a part of my plan, but I, um, well, I went uh, to nursing school in my junior year. There was a trip going to Kenya, working in a community. And a friend of mine wanted to go on the trip and I wasn't necessarily interested, but she invited me um, to this meeting. And I just went to this place and I heard about what was happening, this opportunity to go. And so I thought, you know, I could go for a few weeks. And and I, I came here, it was the summer of 2000. And I really thought it would be a month long experience mm. and that I would learn from people here, but I would go back and continue with life. And that's not exactly what happened. I came and I was in this community and there were amazing Kenyan leaders who cared so much about the people here, um, about their people and the suffering that was happening specifically related to HIV. And I didn't in any way think that I could come and fix anything. It was more of, could I potentially at some point come and be a part of these Kenyans who are doing amazing work? And um, so I finished that trip. I went back. I finished nursing school. I went, I began to work in Los Angeles in an HIV unit and wanted to learn from nurses and doctors there. And so I did that for three years. I at the same time went to nurse practitioner school. but what I had seen here, what I'd experienced in Kenya, it continued to grip me. And I just wondered if there could be a place for me to come and work alongside the team here. And so in 2004, in September, I did come um, to, and I thought it would be maybe for a year or so um, that I could <laughs> come and be a part of a team, see what I could do to potentially be helpful in any way. Um, but what was remarkable, I mean, there's so much like, faith that has guided this journey, but I also feel like just remarkable people I've been able to meet along the way and community here that's so rich that helped has helped to welcome me and helped to guide many steps. That's amazing. Okay. So let me give you, um, I have a bunch of questions from what you just shared. Uh, but let's let me just start by giving you some context. I because we don't know each other. This is the first time we're meeting. I'm very glad for that. Um, so I grew up. Uh, my parents were evangelical missionaries, and so I my dad is Guatemalan. He came to the U.S. when he was a kid. We I was born in upstate New York, and uh, we moved back when I was yeah a, not even a teenager, and spent ten years there. Loved it. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, but also, uh, I, I, you know, I do. I want to start here because I, th I think it's important. A lot of people that listen to this show are, uh, many of them have a faith background, not just Christian, a variety of faith backgrounds. And a lot of them are, um, have uh, deconstructed their faith. They have gone through a lot of, uh, you know, kind of pain and trauma from their church upbringing. And so um, 
I, I have a lot of, um, I love my upbringing that I had. Again, I wouldn't trade it for the world. There were a lot of ups and downs. I'm one of 12 kids. So my parents took 12 kids to Guatemala, just an insane thing that they did. Loved it so much. But I also got a, through those years, uh, preparing to go to Guatemala and then the 10 years there, and then the many years since still hanging on by, you know, the hair of my chinny chin chin in my faith, you know, just trying to figure it out and not wanting to leave because I, I, I do have a faith that I want to continue to cultivate, but also seeing the kind of a lot of the terrible things that, that, uh, you know, people in the Christian faith and other faith faiths have done. So a lot of people will are going to, I just want to start here because I think a lot of people will go in thinking, oh, uh, Julie is, uh, you know, this, she went over there as a missionary, right? And I, you know, I grew up as a missionary and a lot of people thought that I would go, you know, continue to do missionary work. Uh, but I'm very leery about, not about you, I want to preface that, but about so much of the work that's being done, so much of the colonizing work that's being done, white people going to other places and saying, I have something to offer you here. So I want to start by asking you this. Do you, because from what I can read on, you know, the nonprofit website and on your website and just what I know about you and from the book, you have a faith in the Christian God, right? And that's still something that's part of who you are today. And it, 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 it enforces and reinforces everything that you all do. So how do you, do you see what so many people see in typical missionary work? Do you see the kind of a lot of the uh, uh, pain and suffering that has happened because of typical missionary work? And, and as you have, again, I want to get to this before because I want people to stick with us in the conversation. I, I don't want them to check out because, oh, Julie, the missionary, right? Uh, we're going to get to all the amazing things that you all have done. But do you see that? In the work that you have done, I'm sure you come across so many typical white missionaries in the work that you're doing. Do you see yourself as that? What's sort of your perspective on that um, as you've been there for not one year, but now 17, 18 years? Does that, does that question make sense? I know that was a lot, but it's just, I know a lot of people are thinking about it here in the beginning. And I want to sort of like get into that before we get to all the incredible stuff that you and your husband and your family and your nonprofit have done? Yes, uh, for sure. I think that within missionary work, there's often been almost a colonialism type aspect to it where people have come in thinking they know what the answers are for the communities they're supposed to serve. They know. Um, right how to fix what's broken within the community if they can just come and change the people. Thankfully, when I moved into this community, I have just this most remarkable man, named David Tarus, who's from this community, had been here. I mean, this is his home. He's Kenyan and he's very, very strong. And I, I got to come under his mentorship and others' mentorship like him where it there was no space, thankfully, for me to come in and think that I could save anything or anyone. Mm. I mean, it wasn't my intention, but I know that there's a lot of good intentioned people, perhaps, who have come into spaces thinking that they could fix what's broken or come in and save people. And I really believe in the love of God. I believe that it's guided my life. 
But I also believe that there's so much room for me to listen and to pay attention and to learn and to leave room for interruptions and to always keep in mind, even 17 years later, I'm married to a Kenyan. I've lived in the same community. It's been my neighborhood for 17 years, but I don't pretend to think that I fully understand everything about the dynamics here. I've been privileged to be welcomed here. I've been privileged to walk alongside of my neighbors, to not romanticize the poverty or to also like highlight it in a way that doesn't recognize also the beauty and the um, the richness of this place. So there's always the tension and holding all of that where, you know, I moved in because HIV was, I mean, it was just killing so many people. Yeah, right. So it wasn't like I was coming here and thinking I can fix it, but I did want to come and be a part of if there could be solutions that I could work with other Kenyans to see how to serve people. I mean, there was so much stigma and fear when I moved here. And I just had this deep sense, this deep longing, belief, conviction that people shouldn't die alone. And that didn't mean that I needed to be the only person, but could I somehow come alongside and remind people of their worth and their value? And and that's what we did before we had testing, before we had HIV treatment, like our team was in the community, in people's homes, just wanting to remind them of their worth, that even though the stigma, the fear, the discrimination, it was so much and it was so overwhelming, but we believed that they had worth and that we could continue to come alongside of them. And so that's what we did. And I mean, I'm so grateful that we were able to eventually get access to HIV testing and treatment. And the fear and the stigma, like we began to watch it reduce. And I, I mean, I watched, I watched the power of love, like really transform communities mm -hmm. and, and that I got to be a part of that. I mean, it's one of the greatest privileges of my life and that Kenyans were willing to receive me to be a part of this team and to be a part of the work. Uh, I mean, it's, I've, like I, I know sometimes people will say I got more than I gave and, and I don't always know what to right. do with that. But I mean, for, for, for sure, like I have been transformed by the patients that I've got to walk alongside by the opportunities to bring medications into the community, to connect people to HIV testing and to treatment and to watch kids who would have been orphans like their, ki their parents have been able to live, to raise them. And I mean, I am so grateful that I've gotten to be a part of that. And that, you know, now our team is 112 Kenyans and there's Amazing. two Americans, but I mean, it's like, it's Kenyans doing the work. It's Kenyans who are the voice to the community. And I get to be a part of that. Um, and it's interesting because numerous ones of our staff are actually, I would, they're not former patients. They're patients who are well enough now who they're helping to take care of others. That's really incredible. Thank you for sharing that. I, 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 I see something different in the way that you're approaching it than, I guess, my experience in so many ways. Like most of the, I mean, I remember growing up, again, my parents were evangelical missionaries. So we were around church stuff all the time. And, you know, a lot of missionaries, a lot of the missionaries we knew were, you know, starting churches. And I remember thinking it was so weird that 
we would go, we would go visit these other churches from these other white missionaries and they translated all like their, 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 their songs were all American hymns translated into Spanish. Yeah. And I was always like, this is so stupid. Like, do you not think that these people have the ability to write songs in their own language to express how they're feeling in their faith, what they're feeling about God and suffering and pain and good and bad, that you have to go get these hymns that are three, four, 500 years old, translate them really choppy, right? It's because a lot of these words don't translate well, but you're still figuring it out. And that's all we're singing, right? Um, where did you learn? Because, because again, I have a, um, I grew up overseas. I've spent time in uh, several dozen countries. Like I feel much more comfortable outside the U S than I do, you know, in the U S and thankfully we've kind of settled in New York city, this global, amazing city where it feels very, you know, we live in Harlem. It feels very, very global. So I get sort of, I don't feel like I'm always around, um, white people doing white people things. So I get, I get, I get my fill of that, but again, whether it's, whether it's missionaries or even, or even, uh, entrepreneurs in the business world, like there is this, because of how um, the United States of America uh, sees itself, uh, in so many ways, there is constantly this like colonizing, we have something to offer you, you know, and even with the missionary thing, it's so weird because like Africa has been around the continent of Africa has been around for much, 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 much. I mean, we're talking thousands of years longer than this little young, super young country called the United States of America. I mean, many African countries are mentioned in the Bible, right? If we're going to get like super real, like Ethiopia, and I'm sure Kenya's like, I'm sure there were travels through Kenya as well in, in biblical times. Right. And yet we always constantly go over and say, we have stuff to offer you. So who taught you? Where did that come from? Your, it seems like it was an immediate deference to the Kenyan people an immediate, Hey, I want to learn because again, that's just not my experience. I'm going to stop harping on that here in a minute. We'll move on to bigger and better things. But I kind of want to just dive into that for a second. Like, was that you, was that just your personality? You're a learner or was that your parents? Was that the, the, the faith community that was around you? How did you learn that to sort of immediately jump in there and say, and you also said that there was a Kenyan leader that wouldn't let you do it as well. But uh, was there a tug and pull there? Or were you just immediately saying, yeah, that sounds great. I want to learn. Well, there was very strong leadership here that thankfully like knew that Kenyans know what Kenyans need best and that I got to step in under that and just know that that was how it was going to be. Like, I'm so grateful because I feel like if I didn't have that kind of leadership that I don't know exactly how I would have been. Hopefully I would have been a learner and paying attention and willing to like recognize that, but it may have taken me, it may have taken me longer. The other thing that happened for me um, months after moving to Kenya is that I met, um, I met a man named Dr. Joe Mamlin, who is an American doctor. And when I met him, I met him because I was tired of watching people die under the shade of trees without access to testing and treatment. Like I worked in HIV care. I knew that by this time that in the United States, HIV was mostly a chronic disease. Like it was treatable. And now we didn't have access to the testing or treatment. And so I knew like if we could find that, that it could change 
the lives of people. I didn't, I didn't know that it was going to be accessible. Um, but thankfully, like I had met this man and I, who was dying and I just told him like, I think we should try, we should try to find something. And so we went to a clinic that was like 10 miles away. And I didn't know if it would be worth the effort to get there because we live really in a rural place, but we went and there was, this American doctor who was 70 years old, it was like his retirement, but he was from Indiana University and was starting this HIV program alongside of Kenyans. And I got to this clinic and he was standing there and he asked me, what are you doing in the middle of nowhere? And I told him, well, I'm, I'm a part of a team and we're trying to take care of patients in the community, but we don't have access to what we need. And um, he's like, well, my name's Joe. He just introduced me as Joe. And he was just this humble remarkable man. And I, so he said, well, let me show you something. And so he took me into a room that had HIV testing. It had test kits, it had nutritional support. And I just, I started to cry because I was Mm. so overwhelmed by what that meant. Like it, I knew immediately like that this can change. Now we can begin to like mobilize communities. And so I, I bring up, um, Joe, because he became a mentor and friend of mine, and he was starting like it was small. It was a small program that, at this point, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of people now are on treatment and have had access to free, accessible treatment. But people in the communities didn't know yet, and so it was like this this timing where I know it was this moment that I am so grateful <laughs> that like the stories collided of this man named Kibet who was sick and Dr. Joe Mamlin and just us being able to meet one another and the way that Joe saw patients. I mean, he's now in the U S but for 15 years, basically like he was a mentor and friend of mine. And I heard it said that like medical people, nurses, that they see, they have the opportunity to love the stranger. But the way Joe taught me is that, there actually isn't a stranger. Like mm. for so often, I feel like in the U S like we treat people like they're the other on the other side of the world. And he just had this ability to see people in um, that, you know, he would say, well, I'm treating them like it is my brother because I believe he is, you know, I'm treating this like she's my daughter because I believe she could be my daughter and just not separating this other and us kind of mentality. And he wasn't doing it he probably wouldn't say that he was doing it from the Christian perspective. He would just say only love matters. And he would say over and over again, if we were ever to write a book, that's what we would name it. Only love matters. And I, I just got to sit under that type of mentorship also. So I had both Kenyans as well as medical people who I feel like invested in me and allowed me to learn alongside of them and gave me room to dream and to be a part of some remarkable work. I'm so glad you, uh, you had those mentors around you because, uh, you know, that's not the experience that so many people that go overseas and, and want, you know, want to make a difference. They might go over there genuinely with like a humble posture, like, Hey, I want to help not trying to save anything or anyone, but if they don't have those mentors, it can creep in. Um, they can get disillusioned. Uh, what am I doing over here to have those people that are constantly reminding you and others that it's all about love and there is no barrier here. Uh, we are all brothers and sisters. We are, you know, if if one of us, if if one of us dies, like that hurts us all, right? Like we're this part of this like beautiful human family. Um, 
I love that you were able to do that. Give us a picture back then, 17, 18 years ago. Uh, I don't know. What, what, Kenya is like 55 million people right now, right? So uh, what was it back then? 40, 35, 40 million people, something like that. What was, what did AIDS, what did HIV look like in that country that, um, cause, cause I know, again, we had it, we had it not under control, but way more under control here in the U S and, but again, the testing, the resources, they weren't available widely at that point. Um, what did it look like there? How many, what was, what was the percentage of people that were suffering from this? Um, just to give people maybe some of the younger crowd, you know, that maybe weren't even born 17 years ago, or were very young back then. Uh, what did it look like back then in Kenya? 6% of the population was estimated to be infected, wow. um, mostly between the ages of 18 to 35. It was predominantly a heterosexual um, infections as well as mother to child transmission. And so there was just so much disease, but it, it's, it was this rem ugh, it's horrible thing where for so long, people didn't know they would have the infection until their immune system was just completely um, just so compromised that it became really difficult to, to have, you know, to get better. Um, but as we got access to the testing and treatment and we could do the testing earlier, I mean, all pregnant women, we could really work towards having testing so that if they got on medications, almost, almost a hundred percent, you could reduce the transmission to the unborn child. Um, and then for, you know, within communities, like if we could get testing earlier, then we could start people on medications earlier. And not only was that for treatment, but over time, we learned that that was also the best prevention that we had to, because if you could reduce the amount of virus within a person, then their ability to transmit to someone else, like it really reduced. So I just watched like, you know, the, the medical aspects of people being so sick all over the place, but also just within the communities, how much fear, how much stigma as we got treatment, how we could begin to like talk about it in a different way. And um, I remember it like feeling like this giant that was never gonna, there was never gonna be a chance to really yeah. get it, get it over, like get over any control over it. But over time, like little by little by little, we watched just some really incredible things happen. Yeah, I mean, if, if if it was 40, 45 million people back then, I mean, we're looking at two, three million people that were infected at that point that in and were suffering from this. What, what is it? I mean, things have obviously advanced over the past 17 years, uh, resources and otherwise. What's the percentage at now? Like what what's what's happened in the last 17 years in uh, the HIV community? I don't actually know the exact percent right now, but what I what I've witnessed within Western Kenya is just as it became more of a treatable disease, how how we could talk about it different, how people could access it different, the stigma that because of um, PEPFAR and USAID like helping to fund the medications, that there could be accessible and that the financial implications didn't weren't the big barrier for people to get. The treatment, which was also really incredible. Um, so. Yeah, fantastic. So you you moved 17 years ago, right? I did. 2004. Mm -hmm. And you met your husband over there. And uh, we'll get into some of the, the, the your children here in a, in a minute, but you, you know, raised this amazing family. 
how how soon after moving did you meet uh his name is Titus, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how did how did that sort of relationship happen and blossom? Because that's really that's <laughs> seems like a really cool story. I'd been living in Kenya for eight years when I met Titus and was introduced by friends. And he's he's just a remarkable man, um, comes from an incredible family that um I don't know. He's just, he's kind and he's gentle, but he's also has the strength about him that I was drawn to from the time I met him. And, um, by, when I met him, I was in my early thirties and I was hoping that I would be able to get married and ha- raise a family of my own. And so, um, was really grateful when I did meet him and, uh, we got engaged several months after we met and then uh, so David Tarus again, um, when we got engaged, so there's traditional engagements within, um, the challenging culture and community here. And so I told him thinking, cause those can be thousands of people coming for an engagement and wedding. I was just like, well, I don't really need that. You know, I'm happy for us to do something small. And he told me, well, it's not actually about you. Yeah. <laughs> You're a part you're a part of a community right, and right. and you belong. And so this isn't just for you. This is for the community. And just like a, there's been a thousand and one moments like that, just a teaching moments where I'm like, oh, okay. So then, you know, get to be able to have families come together and to negotiate and a dowry and to have a couple of thousand people come to celebrate our wow. engagement and then to come back for a wedding um, with a couple more thousand people and just to feel uh, that I have been received into a community that I've been able to be a part of this little neighborhood where um, such rich hospitality uh, occurs here and that I got to be a part of it. It's really quite special. That's really beautiful. I have not been to Kenya, but uh about a decade or so ago, a little over a decade now, I'm getting old. Um, I spent six weeks in Zambia, Africa, and I loved Zambia. And, you know, at that point, I had traveled uh, to, I've traveled a bunch since then, but at least a couple dozen countries at that point. But I don't know that I, that at that point, that was the country that I enjoyed the most. Again, I've only been to one of the 54 countries in Africa, so I'm not I'm not an, an expert on Africa, but I do know you're telling me this. I have friends that have lived all over, you know, the continent of Africa, and what I experienced was some of the most incredible most hospitable people that I've ever met in my life. And I've met a lot of people from all over the place, from countries rich and poor alike. And these amazing people just poured out everything and gave everything. And it, it, even in terms of the wedding right now, like I've been to a lot of weddings here in the U.S. I've officiated, a, you know, a dozen at this point. And here in the U.S., it feels like at this point, uh, yes, they are festive. Yes, they are a lot of things. But it seems like they're more stressful than anything. You know, I, I spend half my time as the officiant, you know, you know, once I show up on the day of just calming people down, making sure everything's in order. And it's so much about getting it right and getting it perfect. And what I've experienced, not wedding wise, but just hospitality wise, big parties and celebrations and stuff in countries like Zambia and I suspect Kenya, it's not about getting it right. 
And I don't know about the engagement and the wedding, but I, I can't imagine with 2000 people that there were hundreds and hundreds of hours of planning and prepping and making sure everything's perfect. It just happens because when you're hospitable, things come together and everybody, you know, plays their role and you pull it off and it doesn't matter if it's perfect or not. It just happens and everybody's happy. And maybe there's some stress, but not as much as, you know, a 200 person wedding here in the U S where it's tens of thousands of dollars and, and shit still goes wrong and people are upset and, you know, and people are stressed out. Like I just was, was that your experience with the engagement and the wedding where, wait, there has to be more stress and anxiety and things going wrong for 2000 people to come together for this thing. Or did it just feel just organic and wonderful? It felt like it belonged to the community. So the community yeah. showed up to plan for it, Amazing. to gather plates, to peel potatoes, to, you know, like any number of activities belonged to the women doing certain activities, the men doing certain activities, showing up every day. And we do the same for wedding celebrations as we would also do for burials, where again, it belongs to the community. And and that's that's our value. That's our rich you know, the piece of community where that's what we have to give. Like we may not have a lot of money to give to certain things, but we can give our time. We can give, we can sit and peel potatoes. We can sift beans, those kinds of things. That's, that's how it works. You know, is that we don't really believe that you can do things on your own, that you need the community. It's your safety. It's your security. It's your joy. It's in sorrow. It's like all together. And it's different than what I grew up with. And yet, I mean, I feel like my heart has expanded so much because of it. And the number of times where neighbors have shown up at my door in the morning and we receive them and we serve chai and we, um, we listen. We may not be able to give what's being asked, but there's a place for them to come. And the same has been true where I've, I've gone into thousands of homes and you knock on the door and you say Hodi and you don't need an appointment you're received and they say Karibu and they welcome you and they give you the cup of chai they give you what they have and um it's yeah it's really quite beautiful <laughs> it's it's uh I think a lot of that probably has to do with um you tell me if this has been your experience I feel like that can that community collective effort in that uh, you know, kind of open door policy essential essentially happens when people aren't super transient. You're staying in one you know place. Like your family has been here for multiple generations, right? And you don't you don't move. And maybe somebody goes off to university or whatever. But like generally, the the the, the nucleus of that family, all the matriarchs and the patriarchs for a couple generations, they're there. Everybody's there. And so you can build those deep relationships and you can build that trust and that camaraderie. I feel like that might be, and I say that as someone who I've never lived anywhere. Guatemala was the longest I've lived, ever lived anywhere. I've, I've pretty much been on a, you know, one to four years in a certain place ever since moving back from Guatemala. Like I've, you know, and our plan is to be in New York city for a long, long time to come because although I've been able to travel the world and I've seen so many things that many other people will never be able to see. And I'm so grateful for this, you know, living out of two suitcases sort of life that I've had. One thing that I know that I'm missing is that rootedness, right? And here in the U S and in many Western countries, many, you know, very evolved societies, 
uh, technologically, I mean, yeah, your people just move and they get up and go. I mean, I, I, my, my last living grandmother passed away two, uh, two months ago. I hadn't seen her for 10, 12 years. Mm -hmm. And I think it, and, and my brother and I had planned to go see her. She was in good health, 97 years old, just, just rocking it still. And things went downhill quickly and she, she left us. And like in those sorts of societies, you know, in the kind of, in the kind of environment you're living in, there is no, I've gone 10 to 12 years without seeing grandmother, right? Cause you're typically yeah. there or you make the effort to come back. And I regret not being able to see her in those final like months, days, but also that I didn't make the effort. I did make the effort, family, work, everything. There was always an excuse, but I didn't make the effort at the end of the day to go see her for 10 to 12 years. And now she's gone. And even when the, you know, when the, uh, the memorial happened, they didn't, they didn't really have a funeral, you know, only a few of rel only a few of our relatives actually went to it and it felt very honoring and it was wonderful and it was good but not everybody came, right? There should have been hundreds of people from all over the world coming to honor this incredible 97-year-old woman that, you know, birthed four kids that went on to, you know, produce dozens of grandchildren, right? Only a few really kind of showed up. So I envy those sorts of societies and communities and I'm sort of longing for my version of that. I'm still going to travel the world. That's not going to stop. My favorite thing is to get on a plane and go somewhere new. But I think I could still have that while having this sort of rudeness, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't think that my experience is limited to location. I feel like this can happen in different places that we can know our neighbors. We can be involved in our communities in deep and rich ways. I mean, it's so interesting because David Tarus, again, he told me, he tells us like, you should know your neighbors in a five kilometer radius. So three miles, you should wow. know your neighbors, you know, should know their children, you should know their cows, like you should know the people around you. And, and he does, and people do. And it's just, it's remarkable to like have that kind of um, connectedness that it's every day, you know, there's different ways to relate and to and it's not perfect. It's, I mean, there's complexities, there's hard, hard things, but it's also really beautiful. And I feel like so often when stories are told about Africa or when, you know, phrases like third world or developing world or whatever terminology, you know, when you, you want to use, like, I feel like there really are single stories that are often told where it's only about the disease. It's only about the poverty, uh, the wars, the, you know, like, corruption and and while there's aspects of that like it's so much more rich than that and I mean I feel like there are aspects of this community the life that I've been able to live that's just I mean it's it's rich it's beautiful and that doesn't take away from you know there are people in my in my neighborhood who are living on a dollar a day I mean that's part of the story but it's not the full story and I feel like there's things that need to be told. And then it's just hard because I feel like sometimes people only have just a sliver of what's really going on. And so to try to have a, a, a more holistic view of, of the world. And, and I recognize that not everybody gets to travel, but 
that there are ways to learn about places outside the U.S. that we can learn a lot from. And it doesn't always have to be an other kind of thing. No, I completely agree. I, I, I am, if there's one thing I harp on to my, you know, American friends and people that will listen is stop going to the same, you know, vacation, you know, Myrtle Beach or Disney World. Like, I mean, it's so easy and it's so much cheaper than it's ever been to travel. Like, save up a little bit more, stop eating out as much, whatever. If, if money is the thing that's keeping you from traveling, um, cause I, obviously we also are in this amazing day and age where we can hop on HBO max or Netflix or Hulu and like watch these amazing documentaries and feel generally like we're there, but there is nothing like getting off a plane and stepping on a new continent, you know, in a new country, a new people where you are the odd man or woman out. You don't speak the language. Like there is nothing. It is breathtaking. I, one of the last trips I took was to Indonesia and I was with a group of people. Uh, and, and, and one of the things that, you know, we got to the hotel in Jakarta and they were like, Hey, we're going to do this in like three hours. We're going to go grab supper. And they were like, let's just meet down here. Try not to go, you know, don't venture out on your own. This is a brand new place for you. And as soon as they went up the elevator, I ran out the door and, you know, just completely <laughs> disobeyed them. And not that they were telling me what to do, but they were like, you shouldn't run out. You know, this is a new place. And I ran out and just started walking. And I knew where I, you know, I kept track of it. I wasn't trying to be an idiot, but I just went out. And my favorite thing to do ever is to feel like the odd man out. Like I want to, I it's so exhilarating to feel like I don't belong here. That's so exciting. Like, Hey, Jakarta, teach me your ways. And so I'm constantly harping on like, just save up a little bit more, stop, you know, doing things that aren't worth it in the end, stop sp spending money on stupid shit and buy that plane ticket to that new place. You can literally for, I know what it costs for a week for a family of five at Disney world. You can fly to Lisbon, Portugal. You can fly to somewhere at like, you can do it. You can fly to Guatemala. You can fly to all these amazing places. Just get out of your routine. Um, and I also loved what you said about the, the, the neighbors, like get to know, you know, this, I think it was, you said that was Joe or somebody said th three kilometers. Right. And so that might not be possible where I live in New York city, because that's really millions of people in a three kilometer radius, but sure. The, the, the idea is still there. The concept is still there is you don't know when you're going to need them and they're going to need you. You, it is in every way beneficial to get to know these people, to make them part of your family uh, because they truly are. And we've always had this sort of open door policy in all of our homes. It's a little bit different now in New York city because we're in an apartment building. So we can't have an, a, an actual open door policy, but we literally had an open door policy in all of our previous homes, we literally, the front door would be mm -hmm. open for most of the day. We had a screen door, but we were the only family on our street in Nashville, our last home, where our door was open until 11 o'clock at night. Um, and we just have it open because we like to see what's happening on the street, but also because we wanted people to feel like we're open. We're open for business. Like if you need to stop by, you can. That's so important on every level to have those neighbors, those people that feel like they can drop in at a moment's notice. Like that is what people are looking for. They're not looking to drive by their friend's house and see, you know, the shades drawn and the doors closed. That just feels so uninviting. And we've got to realize we've got to get back to, I don't know if it's getting back to, maybe we never were like that, but we've got to see our homes 
as not our own. This is not mine. Yes, I sleep here. I live here. My clothes are here. But this is a place where people need to feel welcomed into, you know, in places like Kenya have so much to teach the United States where I live about hospitality, about opening our doors, about welcoming stranger and friend alike into our home for, you know, for food, for drink, for a place to stay if they need to. Um, so I love learning about new places and for you to confirm what I assume, what I think I already knew about the Kenyan people. And that is extreme hospitality. Uh, we make things happen as a community. That's who we are. And I think like, to your point about travel, I think it's really important that when you do travel, that there's humility. <laughs> that yes. you, When you go into a place where you do recognize that this isn't my home, and if they speak a different language, that they don't, they shouldn't have to speak English, that it's okay for you to be uncomfortable with being in a place outside of what's your norm, and that you can learn from that, and you can have really incredible experiences within that. And I think also, if it's possible to connect with locals or people who can show you or teach you um, rather than just tourist places, if possible, I feel like you'll have a different experience. Yeah, I 100% agree. Even when people are going to, um, you know, wealthier sort of a Western country, if they're going to London or whatever, like still bring that humility with you. You might know, oh, we speak the same language. We share a lot of the same things. Just go, whenever you're leaving home, go take your humility with you and leave your ego at home and go as a student because there's so much to learn and it, it, your trip will be way better if you take that humility with you and you go as a student and you, and I 100% agree, go off the beaten path. Don't just go to the, it doesn't matter. You In, in, in places that are very uh, Western and developed like London or, you know, or Madrid or whatever, there's still off the beaten things that you can go do but you have to be looking for them. You have to be ready to receive it and not just spend time seeing and, and, and experiencing things that make you feel comfortable. That, that's not the point of global travel to feel comfortable. Um, I, I promise we're getting to your book and living room. One more thing that I, I, I'm interested in as someone who has lived overseas for, you know, better part of the last 20 years, the last five years have been, I don't know how much time you've spent back in the last five, six years, but a very tumultuous time in the U.S. for many, many reasons. Um, and I'm not fishing for anything here, Julie. I am simply looking for an outsider's perspective because I don't know where you stand uh, on anything, really, right? So what has been your, not only what have, what, what are your kind of quick synopsis, your thoughts on what has happened over the last five, six years? What, what are you hearing? What are you sensing? But also, what are your neighbors in your community sensing um we have not this country has not been a good example on of being a good neighbor uh, of being a good citizen over the last five to six years whether it's how whether it's our you know former president our current president um the pandemic the black lives matter movement these are things that the whole world knows about right and so what have you what is your sense about what's going on um, how you're feeling about all of it. And then just what's happening in your community. What are they saying about the United States um, and what's been happening? 
Yeah, I think that the amount of division that exists within the U.S. is really highlighted. People people pay attention to global news, not just the U.S. news. Right. And I think that that's a unique um, thing. Often people in the U.S., I think, mostly pay attention. Um, I don't mean to generalize, but generally, um, I guess that is a general thing. No, but <laughs> it's true. Pay attention to it's U.S. True. news yeah. versus looking at what's going on around the world unless it affects the U.S. Um, and so I think that that's unique. Many places around the world, people are paying attention to what's going on all over the place. So there's definitely been a lot of questioning of what's happening in the U.S. Why is there so much division? Why does it look like certain things are crumbling? Why isn't there hospitality issues with refugees? Like a whole number of things. And I, I think that there's not, there's not specifically like with my neighbors asking why Republicans versus Democrats. It's not that. It's more of like looking at it of why wouldn't they want, um, why wouldn't they want immigrants to come? Why wouldn't there be funding for certain issues? Why wouldn't there be this or that? I think that's more of the stance. Um, and it depends who you're talking to, but for sure, like there's been a lot of conversations along those lines. Um, and then with COVID, I mean, I think <laughs> it's a public health crisis that somehow became about politics and it's affecting everyone everywhere. And like in Kenya, there was no way people could quarantine for months and months. Like people are trying to survive every day. If they don't, if they don't work, there's not food. There's not right. like months of savings. So there's a lot of those kinds of conversations happening um, where, you know, we don't have access to vaccines for the most part. I think it's right now, I believe it's around 2 million people have had access to wow. a vaccine, which has increased a lot, but that's like 5% of our population. And I don't know how long it's going to take to get access to that. And so, I mean, those kinds of things, the disparities, the wondering why for some and not for others, I think those are the conversations that I've been listening to and been a part of and trying to, I don't know if I can reckon with them, but just trying to navigate because I want my neighbors to have access to testing, treatments, the vaccines. I want things to be affordable. I want them to be available. And, you know, like I grew up where, you know, so often people, you know, within the church talk about God blessing America, but I really want God to bless the world. <laughs> and I want it to be beyond borders because I believe that's how God works and um and I'd really like that to be true of the church you know to really see yeah it's 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 really difficult right um I I, I will spend one minute talking about this and then we'll move on um talk about living room because I'm very excited to talk about that just this that one of the things that has brought me in fact, when you were saying it, when you gave that percentage, I started to tear up because it, it truly grieves me that vaccines literally aren't available to Kenyans. They are not available to Kenyans. We have millions of doses on the shelf here, on shelves here, and people won't take them. It's inconceivable to me. And yes, it was politicized. Uh, I won't get into it, but it's to me, there's a very clear trajectory as to how it got politicized. It's, it's very clear to me how it happened and why it happened, but here we are. And 
we have so many doses just sitting around. We have, and we have a gut, like you said, they can't, if they get COVID, they can't, you can't quarantine because if you don't work, you don't eat. That's not the case here for most Americans. We have, you know, even though there was a, there were fights at all levels of government, we had governments that sent money to people so they could stay home and not go to work. And it wasn't the amount that they should have gotten. It wasn't the amount that we should have sent people. It should have been way more, but they did it. And people got money and there's still resources available to them. And like I said, there's still millions of doses sitting on shelves and millions and millions of people that refuse to get vaccinated. Our, our hospitals are overrun with unvaccinated people. Our ICUs are overrun with unvaccinated people. I right now at this moment, and I won't get into details because it really makes me sad, but I have family members that are in the hospital with COVID. I don't know how it's going to work out for them. And I, I pray, I'm, I'm praying right now. I've been praying for days that they will recover. But it's like you have this miraculous vaccine sitting there that can prevent this from happening, but yet you've bought into all of this, this mis and disinformation. It's it, this, this tug and pull that you just presented about like there, and you're, you're one country of, I'm sure, I, I don't know the number, but we're talking, there's 190 countries in the world, over a hundred countries are in the same situation that Kenya is in. 5%, 4% of the people vaccinated. I'm sure the number would be way higher if the, the doses were actually available, but they're not. And you have these Western, you have the UK, you have the US, these countries that have an abundance and they just won't get with the program. It's heartbreaking because I want to send all of our doses to you. I want to send all of our tests to you because I'm sure there would be more people that would receive them and, and, and take them and they're just not available. And I, I, I long for... I long for the United States and I long for every country and all people to see themselves primarily, firstly, as a citizen of the world and not a citizen, whatever their passport says. That is secondary. The viruses and money and resources and, and healing doesn't, they don't see borders. Those things don't see borders. They, they will help. Those things that I just mentioned will help whoever they're presented with, right? Black, white, brown, you know, Kenyan, American. And I just don't see why we all can't get on that same page. That like before your passport says the, you know, the Republic of Kenya, is it a Republic? I think it's a Republic. Uh, yeah. Or the United States of America. It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter at all. It is primarily and firstly about if, if my brothers and sisters in Kenya are well, I'm well. And if I'm well, there well. And it just grieves me that we can't see that all, all of us. Some of us do. I think you see it. You're nodding along. You're smiling. You're frowning at certain places. Same with me. Like we get it, but um, we all need to get it. Sorry. That was a little rant there, but. And I think even if it's not a value that, <laughs> that people have the same worth wherever they're from, that to think that there's not an interdependence, that there's consequences if something happens to people here and there, like that it doesn't affect us. I feel like, you know, if there's not a first world, second world, third world, there really is one world and it's one world. how, how we love and see one another and care for one another in practical ways all over. It, it matters. Yeah, it really does. It really does. I could talk. We'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> so 
Living Room is this organization that you and others founded. Tell us, I, I know that it's, it's as much as I know is that Living Room was created to meet the needs of the seriously ill in Western Kenya. That's a big statement. That's a lot of people. That's a, that, that's a, that encompasses a lot of things. So what is Living Room? Who's running it? What are you doing? Um, and then I want to spend the rest of our time on your amazing book, just talking through. It's a lot of the stuff we already mentioned, but I want to make sure that people leave this conversation, go order that book, get it, consume it, start following the work that you're doing. But Living Room, um, how did it come about? I'd been, I had been living in Kenya for five years. Our team was, like I had described earlier, was doing community work. And we kept seeing patients who were suffering terribly, needing hospice, end-of-life care, needing rehab-type services. And so we started really small with a couple of inpatient beds, um, Kenyans caring for Kenyans. And we believed that, you know, the people were uh, with HIV, with cancers, they weren't having access to medications they needed for very for various reasons socially may have been rejected by their families or by community, which really is the biggest loss that people have here when that happens. And so um, we wanted to create a space where people could come, they would be welcomed. It's called Kimbulio, which means refuge in Swahili. And um, long story short, um, now we have 24 bed inpatient facility here in this village where mm. adults and children come. Initially, it was mostly for HIV, but has expanded to cancers and other diseases. And, you know, in the US, often we think of hospice only of end of life care, but here there's a good number of people who actually get better in certain ways and are able to go back to the community. Some are on our staff. Um, we have two locations now that are um, both providing holistic care, so looking at emotional, physical, spiritual needs of people, wanting them to feel welcomed and loved and cared for. We know medication is needed, um, and we want pain and symptoms to be managed, but we also want people to know that they're important and that there's a place for them. And I think one of the most beautiful things of my life is to watch um, people who have experienced rejection, who have experienced um, feeling like a failure to be received in a way that begins to affirm their worth and they begin to know that they belong again and um, that they can be loved and accepted. It's been really, really beautiful. And so um, I feel like our work isn't so much about whether someone gets better or if someone um, dies, but it's about the process of loving um, each moment of each day. We do it imperfectly, but wholeheartedly. And there's um, two locations where we're working and we have 112 Kenyans on our staff and we're in the community. We have inpatient services. We run a funeral home. And um, when we started, it really was small. It was paying attention to the person in front of us. And now it's much bigger, but it's still paying attention to the person in front of us and listening and wanting to know what's important to them as they're going through really hard things. And our vision was to create a community of compassion that honors life and offers hope. And little by little, I think we're getting to watch that be lived out. And, um, you know, it's, it's children, it's adults, and it's, it's quite a wonderful community. It's, it's such important work for two things stick out to me uh, with this work. One is, 
if you don't have your health, you have nothing, right? You could have no money. Uh, I am, I live in a very diverse neighborhood in Manhattan and there are uh, people experiencing homelessness everywhere. You can live on the streets for years and not die. People will give you food. They will give you money. You will be able to make it. It's a horrible situation that I wish, and we could here in the U.S. solve the homelessness and we don't, uh, but you could still survive, right? You still have a, a life. But if you don't have your health, so in other words, my my th- my reason to pointing that out was you, you you can still live and not have money, you could figure out a way, but if you don't have your health, um, it's a much different situation. You need your health to uh, do anything, and so taking care of people's health, their physical well being, is maybe the most important work that we can do. On top of that, you know, you pointing out that obviously we want everybody that we take care of to get better, but it's not ultimately about that. It's about loving them and being with them through the process. That is another thing that stuck out to me is when we are not well, when we are sick, could be a headache or terminal cancer or HIV, anything. If we are not well and we don't have anybody there with us, to walk alongside us, to take care of us, that is one of the most horrible feelings. One of the best things ever is being sick and having someone come check on you. What do you need? Do you need anything? Water, food. That changes the whole game of being sick. I don't know if I'm correct in saying this, but it would make sense to me that someone would die quicker if they were alone and sick than if they have someone to love them and care for them through the process. Again, terminal or non-terminal illnesses, I think it all slows down when you have someone to touch and to hold and to hug and someone to feed you and make sure you have what you need. Am I correct? Am I I on the right path there? Absolutely. Quality of life and knowing that you're valuable makes a huge difference. And I mean, one of the things that's also quite remarkable of the place is I think often when people think of hospice, they think. At this point, we lost Julie for a minute or two. She warned me that the electricity could go out and that she would reconnect as soon as she could. And she did just that. It was way quicker than I thought it would be. I just wanted to explain the lost train of thought and us trying to get back on track. So with that being said, let's continue. I'm back. Sorry, I don't have power. (laughs) Did your electricity go out? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So now we're in the dark, but. <laughs> well, well, I will, we'll take another 10 minutes or so and I'll let you go. Cause I know that, uh, uh, things just got a little more complicated with, uh, not having electricity. So, <laughs> but I'm glad. Well, it's I'm, okay. Yeah. So keep going. So I was just saying that, uh, so people think of hospice being the sadness, being lost, being the pain, which is all a part of it. But what I think is, Equally true of the work that's going on at Kimbulio is that there is singing, there is a lot of laughter, there is, again, the sense of hospitality that exists within the larger community has been created um, and really has grown within the work. Um, so, and it's interesting because hospitals in general, I would say in Kenya, 
are not actually known for hospitality. They have much more of a colonial kind of feel where the, the doctor knows the patients often aren't allowed to ask questions. I mean, that's changing, but tra- traditionally over the last 50 years, like going into a hospital is, can be a really, um, a really, really hard experience. Uh, if you can't pay for your bill, then you actually aren't released from the hospital until the bill is paid for. I mean, there's so many people have to sell their land, everything they own so that someone can get treatment. And then if communication isn't done properly, where people don't know that cancer is really advanced, like everything that you can do to get treatment is going to be pursued. But, you know, at what cost? I mean, it really can be. And it's similar in the U.S. Like, I mean, there's people who, without insurance, people living all over the U.S. where they don't have access to health care. Right. You know, also. So it's not one location. But I just feel like, I feel like healthcare is a right. I feel like it matters deeply <laughs> that people have access to it. And that when someone gets sick, like that shouldn't be what bankrupts your family. Yeah, no, I completely agree. The the work that you all are doing is so incredibly important. I'm so, um, I admire what you all are doing a lot. Let's spend the last uh, few minutes together talking about this amazing book that this podcast releases on Tuesday, September 28th, and your book releases on Tuesday, September 28th. So you wrote this amazing book called From Beyond the Skies. It's a lot of stuff we already talked about. I intentionally, uh, if you want to say more about Ryan um, here, maybe just give people a, a picture into what happened in 2016 in your life and in your family's life. Um, but I intentionally didn't want to like dive into it because I really want people to hear it, uh, hear you talk about it, or I guess read you you know, your account of what happened and how that changed your life. Uh, But tell us about the book from beyond the skies, maybe give a quick peek into uh, what happened in 2016, your family. And um, yeah, just tell us what you want about the book that would encourage people to go read it and get it. In 2016, it was a Friday afternoon. I walked into Kimbaleo to do rounds um, and to see patients. And there was a three pound premature baby wrapped in this pink blanket. And I was told his name was Ryan and that his mother had died during childbirth and that his father had died in a roadside accident. And so on the day of his birth, literally didn't have any parents. And I picked him up and all I knew is that I wanted him to live. Like it wasn't so much about something for me or our family. It was more of I looked at him and I knew, I knew how valuable he was and that I wanted, as hard as his story was, I wanted him to continue to have life. And so called um, a doctor in Eldoret, which is a town about an hour away, and to see where to go next. And so we ended up taking him to the NICU there. And, in, and there, there was, at the time, there was a strike. And so there were hundreds of babies. And so Ryan, for his first well, he was five years old when I met him. And then we took him to the NICU and he spent two weeks there. Um, and while he was there, he shared his little bassinet with two other babies, but he got well enough that um, my husband Titus and 
I were just asking, we knew the hospice wasn't the right place for him to stay um, if he was going to survive. And so I just asked him, could he come for a period of time to our house just until he gets stable enough and that we can figure out? And so he did. Um, we had a two and a half year old um, biological daughter named Ella. And so Ryan came and was in our home. I fed him drop by drop and just prayed that it would stay down. And little by little, he grew. Um, and then when he was about a month old, so he was the youngest of eight siblings, is the youngest of eight siblings. Titus was meeting with extended family members, just trying to get a sense of what was what was their wishes, what were they hoping for. And um, about a month into Ryan's staying in our house, Titus told me one night while power was out, just like it is tonight, um, that he doesn't need to go anywhere. And I said, what? And he says he doesn't need to go anywhere. And so it was too much to discuss at that moment what that he was actually, I think, announcing. But weeks later, um, I just asked him, okay, so what, what does that mean to you? And long story short, um, we began the process of guardianship and then adoption. And um, when Ryan was six months old, he was diagnosed with sickle cell disease and um, two of his other siblings also were diagnosed with sickle cell disease and talk about health disparity and right. not accessing treatment and um, that being born, I don't believe that being born in a certain geographical location should determine whether you can survive a disease or not. And yet for kids throughout sub-Saharan Africa who are born with sickle cell disease, that is and has been the story. Um, and so like, I don't know. I don't know how to, there's just been this invitation that's been around these kids in our lives. And we decided to say yes um, to them and to their families and to wanting them to survive and to do whatever it would take for that to be possible. And so eventually that led um, to us moving to the U.S. for a period of time to Los Angeles to do bone marrow transplants for Ryan and for his brother, Joe and their sister was a donor match. And really the book is, it's that journey. And it's the journey of us living with a family in Los Angeles for 477 days and then welcoming us in a way that helped to carry us through some of the hardest seasons of our life. And, uh, you, you know, you can look back and feel the wonder of it all, but there was a lot of hard and, in somewhere in the middle, we began to say, you know, love makes us brave, but it also makes us really tired. <laughs> and yeah. it was really, really hard. Um, but it was, it was beautiful. The community that came alongside of us. Um, and so, you know, we've talked some about me being a Christian and doing, um, and feeling like faith has led me, but many of the people who walked alongside of us in this journey were not Christians. And, when I wrote the book, it was really important to me that if, as they read the story, that they would feel invited and welcomed into it, that I wouldn't have a lot of, you know, the Christian language words that are sometimes used that can exclude people. Like it felt really important to me that I would write, well, I, I call it like my long letter. When Ryan um, had crazy complications from the treatment and the doctor's and nurses who helped to save his life when he was coming out of the ICU in Los Angeles, I just asked, 
a friend, you know, like what, how can I say thank you to these people who've helped to save our child's life? And I was told, well, you can't repay them, but you write a letter. And so when I think of this book, I think of it as my complete letter of this. Many of them would, you know, they knew we were from Kenya, but they don't know about our work. They don't know about the journey, all of the obstacles it took for us to get to the U.S. and all that, you know, went into it. And so I just felt like this desire, one, to write the story for my kids, because um, I want them to know how deeply they're loved, how much we fought for them because they matter so much. But I also wanted it to be for everyone who accompanied us on the journey and walked alongside of us and told us over and over again with their actions that that these children mattered and that they were willing to stand with us. And, um, and I will forever be grateful for that. You know, like I've been a nurse practitioner for so many years. It's long been my responsibility to walk alongside of others in their vulnerabilities yeah. and their losses and their pains. And, and now it was my turn to learn in a whole new way to receive the kindness, to receive the generosity, to receive the hospitality of others. And we needed it to survive and people did that for us. And so that's, that's what the story is about. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, um, I'm hoping that the story will find its way to people who can be encouraged um, challenged inspired by it i feel like the last 18 months have with covid like it's created uncertainty for everyone and there's just there's layers of protection that i think we're trying to protect ourselves because we're tired we're exhausted by it all we want it to go away we want normal to be back and i'm not sure that all of that is going to happen but i'm hoping that you know we lived in quarantine basically for a year before COVID, we lived with the uncertainty of not knowing from day to day what was going to happen. And I don't know, I, I feel like the story may sit differently after walking through COVID um, than it would have otherwise, that we've all now shared an experience of losses and disappointments and uh, the challenges of it all. And yet, I feel like there can be beauty, there can be hope, there can be a love that doesn't give up um, when it gets hard. Julie, can we be friends like real friends? Because I think you're, mm. I think you're fantastic. This has uh, been such a an incredible conversation on so many levels. Um, uh, I want people to go get the book from Beyond the Skies. I will obviously link to it in the show notes. Um, is it, it's available wherever people want to buy it, or is it, or are there certain places where you want people to go to get it? No, it's available on um, from beyondtheskies.com website. It shows different vendors, um, small businesses, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. So it's available, and I would be so grateful um, and honored if people would, would get it. Yeah, absolutely. From beyondtheskies.com, go there. I checked it out earlier. It, it there are links, and I always push people toward independent bookstores before uh, Amazon. Amazon's easy, right? People can order it, and it'll be sure. there the same day or next or whatever. But uh, if you can order from an independent bookstore, um, Living Room International, if people want to learn more about what you're doing and who you are, what's the best place to send them to Living Room or to your, you, I know you have a website. Um, are you on social media? Like what's the best way for people to follow up and continue to uh, follow what you're doing? I am on social media at Julie McGowan Boyd. Um, and then I think that, I think, 
living room is great to see the work. If you want to learn more about the book and our story from beyond the skies.com is the right place. Amazing. Julie, thank you so much for joining us uh, with and without electricity. And um, I'm excited <laughs> to continue following your journey. And I hope many others will join me as well. Thank you so much. Hey friends, that's it for today. Thank you so much for choosing to spend some time with Julie and me today. To learn more about what Julie is doing and to buy her incredible and brand new book out today, September 28th, visit fronbeyondtheskies.com. And of course, to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. I'm really grateful for each and every one of you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.